The second death. What is it? Who goes to it? Is there any escape from it? Today's Differing Things is an interview with biblical scholar and author Phil Scranton about his new book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. Today I am talking with Phil Scranton, a dear friend, a Bible scholar and author, and someone who I've had the real privilege to get to know over the last few years. What I'd really like to do today is to discuss your book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. I feel this is a really misunderstood topic, so it is ripe for us to investigate this topic. If you do not mind my asking, what mode of interpretation do you use when approaching the Bible, and why is this so important, Phil? That is an important question, Bill, because the variety of interpretations on topics in the book of Revelation result from a variety of presuppositions and different methods for approaching the book. As we follow New Testament history, we see that God set Israel aside as his chosen nation, and he unveiled a secret, or as some uh, versions call it, a mystery. Um, and he committed a special ministry to the Apostle Paul, which went to all nations equally, including the Jews. As a nation, Israel was blinded or calloused, but those individuals of Israel with faith in Christ are saved with believers from other nations. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that this will continue till the full number of the nations or from the nations come in to complete the celestial administration of the kingdom. After that, there will be a rebirth of Israel through the pains of the tribulation travail. Then Israel will be renewed to rule the administration of the kingdom on earth. Now, only the apostle John uses the term, the second death. And as we study the book of Revelation, we can see that it is intensely Jewish. The beginning of its action will come at the end of the current age, and there will be a return of Israel to a dominant place in God's plan. We actually see John's prophecies and visions taking place in three different ages. His visions are primarily from a global per perspective, and many commentators seem to lose sight of that, and their interpretations really suffer for it. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you being on with me today, Phil. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what was your main motivation for writing your upcoming book, Journey to and Through the Second Death? It doesn't seem like the topic you really hear a lot of, of people talking about. Well, that's, that's true, Bill. We don't hear a lot about it. But years ago, I was presented with the definite possibility that in the final outcome, God would save his entire creation. The information I had found on this issue seemed very convincing, but it failed to answer one big question in my own mind. And that question is, what about the second death? What was it? How could the book of Revelation be true and be in agreement with this interpretation? I came to find out there are many opinions about the second death. And for me, it's been a long journey 
to come to what I believe is the right understanding of it. I understand that your upcoming book is divided into two different sections. Why is this? Well, Bill, perhaps the most important question, and I think definitely the first question to be asked on this issue is, what is the first death? After we find a biblical answer to that question, then we can ask, what is the second death? Is the second death a repetition of the first death, or is it something else? This is important because, as you know, in Christianity in America alone, there are at least two or three different and widely held answers to this question, and they all claim to be based on the Bible. So for me, the starting point is to find a biblical definition of death. I'm talking with Bible scholar and author Phil Scranton about his book. In the book, Journey to and Through the Second Death, you make much out of the translation of the Greek words aeon and aeonius. Why are these words so important? Yes, that's a very critical point, Bill. These Greek words and their Hebrew equivalents are frequently translated forever or forever and ever or eternal. Sometimes they are correctly translated as age or ages. The true meaning of the noun I own is an age or an eon, a long period of time that has a definite beginning and ending. But it is translated most often as forever, an unending period of time. This even happens though the word is sometimes singular and sometimes plural. But there is also a list of other expressions used in translation by different versions. In the authorized version, it is translated world 38 times and accompanied with differing phrases. World or cosmos is not a synonym for age. And Bill, five times in the book of Matthew, the translators changed their normal rendering of forever to world in order to avoid the obvious blunder of making a contradiction. Five times Matthew speaks of the end of the age. The authorized version renders it the end of the world. If they had been consistent, they would have translated it the end of forever. <laughs> can, <laughs> can you imagine what a stir that would have made? Oh, yeah. The end of forever. And, and what if we tried to, to see how that would work out? What if we read in Matthew 13 that the harvest when the tares are bound into bundles and cast into the fire, that the harvest is the end of forever. So <laughs> let me ask you, how can they be tormented forever if the time when they are cast into the fire is the end of forever? <laughs> their, <laughs> their inaccurate translations is complete nonsense, and their inconsistency just leads to confusion. And, and that's, you know, we, we need to be able to see clearly. Oh, yeah. So is there going to be a judgment at the end of forever? Or is there going to be a judgment at the end of the age before the new age begins? Most of the newer translations have changed these render, renderings of world to age, and that is good. But they still have failed to be consistent 
and left the rendering of forever in many other places where it continues to confuse the true meaning of the passage. Now, whenever we have the phrase forever and ever, and you know, let me throw in another thought here. Have you ever stopped to think if forever is endless, how long is forever and ever? I know that's crazy, isn't it? You have two different forevers. That's right. And uh, but we have that phrase over and over again in the New Testament. But when we have this phrase, it's representing one of three different phrases. It might be representing for the age of the ages. Notice the singular and plural difference there. Right. Or it could represent for the ages of the ages or for the age of the age. The simple fact that singulars and plurals are ignored in translation shows something. It either shows an ignorance on the part of the translators or a failure to believe in the inspiration of scripture, or they were working under restrictions like the King James translators did, where they were not able to translate anything in a way that contradicted the teachings of the church. Well, unfortunately, we have the same problems with the adjective Ionios. Ionios means pertaining to an age, just as uh, we have the words day and daily, or year and yearly. We have an age and pertaining to an age or age long or something. Most often, this term is translated eternal. As in the, the phrase we have so many times, eternal life. Eonian and age abiding are among the better renderings for this word. This term, too, is just fraught with problems. Augustine taught that since the word is used twice in a sentence, speaking both of the life of the saved and the chastisement of the wicked, that they must be of equal duration. In general, we agree with this principle, but the kingdom life of ruling and blessings only endures until the kingdom is completed, and the chastisement of the wicked and unbelieving will not endure beyond the completion of the kingdom, because they will be reconciled and acclaim that Jesus is Lord before Christ hands back the completed kingdom to his Father. Furthermore, there are four or five more sentences in the New Testament where both Ion and Ionios are used twice in the same sentence. And in none of them can both occurrences of these words be translated with the idea of eternity without turning the sentence into nonsense. These examples are provided in detail in our book. We'll not try to uh, overwork this right now, but it's a very important issue. It, it sounds very important. If you don't mind my interjecting a, a, a question, um, maybe throw you for a loop on it. <laughs> <laughs> but you had mentioned before three different phrase, phrases for the age of the ages, or for the ages of the ages, or for the age of the age. What exactly do those things mean? Well, that's a, that's a good question, Bill. Um, probably the easiest way to explain this is to think about how these 
words, uh, how we have similar phrases used in the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament both. The King of Kings is the greatest King of all kings. The Lord of Lords is the greatest Lord who's over and above all lords. The Holies of Holies were the two most holy places in the tabernacle and temple and, and in the entire camp or nation of Israel. The ages of the ages are the two greatest ages of all the ages. And the age of the ages would be the, the ultimate age, the great climactic age or eon, when God's purpose is being completed. So we see, uh, you know, we, we see that there's definitely a theme here running through this. And, and if we hide this, then we're, we're just left with uh, not knowing what God's plan is. Thank you. I think, I think that gives clarity for those that might be listening and not familiar with, with these words. Um, my next question really, I think, is one that a lot of people might ask, because again, most people as they approach Bible study don't think technically. So one of the questions they might ask is, so what is the basic importance of getting these words translated correctly? How does it impact Bible study? Okay. These words, Bill, are used throughout the New Testament, and they provide us with the teaching of God's plan of redemption through a course of ages. God has a plan. It's, things are not just happening and eventually uh, it comes to an end. <laughs> but there's a definite plan here. Right. And without seeing this, if without having these words translated correctly so that we can see a progression in the ages, we're prevented from coming to an accurate eschatology, which is a, a study of the last things, and, and understanding the Bible. It is clear that the Bible speaks of a plural number of ages to come, but uh, most eschatologies don't uh, see anything but perhaps maybe one age or just an eternal state before us. Okay. Maybe I could give you an example of that. That would be good. Okay. Um, the name preterism comes from a word meaning past. And preterism is a view of last things uh, of a lot of Bible students. And this view says that, basically says that prophecy is fulfilled. All prophecy is fulfilled. There's nothing to come but a final judgment and a so-called final or eternal state that follows after that. Full preterism has little or no use for the book of Revelation or any future events on a biblical calendar. And because of this, actually a large percentage of preterists have an eschatology that combines with amillennial or, or postmillennial views. Generally, these views consider the church or the body of Christ to be the fulfillment of the prophecies about Israel's future. They would make the church the kingdom, and uh, the kingdom just becomes a figurative thousand-year reign of the church. Christian life in the present becomes the resurrection to the kingdom, 
and there's no literal glorious future for Israel. They would say that the world gets better and better, and finally Christ returns with a final judgment and a nebulous final state. Some post-millennials will also put a glorious thousand-year ending on this current age uh, in which the, the world peace becomes even better. Now, that's that's what we have with preterism, all millennialism, and and uh, post millennialism. The pre millennialists do generally hold to a separate future age of a thousand years, and that Israel does still have a future glory, but they have nothing after that. None of these popular views see more than a single age to come in the future. And many see no future age beyond the present. This is the result of turning a plural number of ages into a vague eternal eternity through poor translation. To me, it's also a denial of biblical inspiration because they see no difference between repeated varieties of singular and plural uses of these terms. This is all a very great loss because each age in God's purpose has specific goals to be accomplished in mankind's education and, and maturing and perfecting. In our book, we describe the future coming ages and show how they've been anticipated or we might say pictorially portrayed in Israel's first three kings. Israel only had three kings before the kingdom was divided and characteristics of these three kings and their kingdoms represent the remainder of this age since Christ came and the two coming ages that we have yet to see. God's full plan and purpose will come to fruition. The Bible forecasts this in a number of different ways. Well, are there any versions of the Bible that would translate these words correctly? Yes, actually, Bill, there are a number of them. The Emphasized Bible by Joseph Rotherham is a good one. Robert Young, who compiled Young's Concordance, Concordance, also made a version called Young's Literal Translation. The Concordant Literal Translation of both the New Testament and Old Testament is another good one. Now, some editions of Weymouth's New Testament avoid the idea of endlessness for these terms, and some go back to the old King James renderings. It depends on who was in charge of reissuing a, an edition of Weymouth, but he originally uh, left that out. And the emphatic diaglot is still available in some areas, and, and that is good. Probably the most recent, um, David Bentley Hart has published a translation of the New Testament that accurately renders these terms. Well, is there an English Bible that you would prefer then? And why And why do you prefer it? Okay. Well, that's actually, I find that a difficult question, Bill. Um, I like different versions for different reasons. I like the concordant version for a study Bible. Hart's translation is smooth, a smoother reading uh, script and uh, it's, it's fresh, you know, it's a, a, more uh, a more contemporary take on things right 
and I still like the authorized version for some things because I can easily keep in mind that the words forever and eternal and everlasting don't express the true idea that's there. Um, and then there's always a companion Bible by E.W. Bullinger in the uh, authorized version. It has so many good, helpful footnotes and outlines. Um, it, I think it's something we sort of need to uh, adjust to an individual's taste and their needs. Um, and, and they find out what, what suits them. That, that, that sounds accurate because I find myself also having uh, different Bibles I use for different reasons. Um, yeah. And again, the ones that you mentioned are all ones that I do have, and I like each of them for different reasons. Um, this all sounds really kind of technical, though. Does your book use a lot of technical language that would be very difficult for, say, our average listener or an average reader who doesn't? And does the book point out any clear examples of these different ages? Yes, it does, Bill. Journey to and through the second death uses common language, and I purposely avoid as much as possible any kind of technical terminology. And it also gives some examples that show easily identified differences between the ages. And I think this is important to see. In the book of Revelation, we frequently have the term for the ages of the ages, and um, and it covers this great persecution that we expect to come at the end of this age, and then it gives some details of things happening in the next two ages. So these ages are the greatest and climactic ages in God's plan when his glory is continually growing and, and reaching its zenith. Now, we can get a clear example of these ages by considering a couple things. We want to consider the location of Satan in different ages and also how Christ rules in different ages. In the current age, Satan is loose and sows the seeds of the tares in the field where Christ, the Son of Man, sowed the good seed. In the coming age, Satan will be locked in the abyss, or the authorized version will call it the bottomless pit. And he'll be locked there for a thousand years so that he cannot deceive the nations. This not deceiving the nations is uh, really tells us a lot about that age and why it is different and how it's different and what God's purpose is there, that the nations would be freed from spiritual deception for those thousand years. And then in the final age, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. These three different locations are all related to three different ages or eons. Now, thinking about Christ and his rule, during the current age, Christ rules from heaven in the hearts of believers. But the world is not subjected to him. In the coming age, he will rule through a reborn nation of Israel. That will be the rule with the rod of iron by the lion of the tribe of Judah over the nations. In the final age, with the new heavens and the new earth, he rules as the lamb, the perfect sacrifice, 
and reconciles all to God. Here are three different ages or, or portions of ages and differences between them. Now, Eonian life will be the immortal life of believers who will be raised in the coming ages to rule and reign with Christ under his headship. But that Eonian life is a specific term that applies to those two ages when the ruling and reigning is taking place, even though they're immortal. I'm talking with Bible scholar and author Phil Scranton about his upcoming book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. In the book, Journey to and Through the Second Death, you make reference to ruling in the kingdom, which has two different realms. Can you, can you explain briefly what you mean by this? How does this impact the Christian? Well, that's a very interesting subject in itself, Bill. I'd like to start by noticing a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that Moses contended with the gods of Egypt with the plagues and freeing of Israel from slavery. Elijah especially contended with Baal under the wicked rule of Ahab and Jezebel. And Gideon even received the name, they called him Jerob Baal because he contended with Baal. There was always conflict with false deities, which were the representations of rebellion in the spiritual realm. But it always dealt with things on earth since Israel's promise was to have a land and to be a blessing to the nations on the earth. In the New Testament, we see Christ continually casting out demons in addition to healing and teaching and, and the other things he did. He was fighting the spiritual realm as well as dealing with the physical. Now, in order for the kingdom to come, there must be new rule in heaven as well as new rule on earth. This is why the ascension of Christ is so important. When Israel as a nation crucified Christ and was later set aside for failing to repent, the Apostle Paul was called to begin a new ministry. Today, believers from all nations make up the body of Christ, which will rule in heaven over the spiritual realm. As Paul said, don't you know that we will judge angels? And in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, he tells us that the enemies we contend with are the spiritual powers of the world. The rule of a reborn Israel on earth in the future coincides with the rule of the body of Christ in the heavens. And the casting out of the dragon from heaven, the devil and his angels, and, and that dragon is an image for both Satan and his messengers. In Revelation 12, that is a significant step in this process. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the administration of the kingdom has ruling bodies in both realms, both in heaven and on earth. Since you brought up the, the identity of the dragon and we're talking about, you know, some of these issues in Revelation 12, what really is the significance of understanding the identity of the characters, and in particular in Revelation chapter 13? Bill, this is one of those those passages that 
to me, here's one of my pet peeves, I guess I would have to say. I believe that many commentators on the book of Revelation seal their interpretation of the beast in Revelation, and at the same time, they seal their conclusions to the whole book by what they say in chapter 13. And this is referring to the beast and the second beast which is called the false prophet. Right. To illustrate this, I'd like to ask the question, what did Walt Disney have in common with God? You ever thought about that, Bill? Not really. That <laughs> <laughs> seems like a, a very funny kind of question. Well, if we think about Walt Disney, of course, he is really known probably more than anything else for animation the cartoons and, and, and things like that. He frequently used animals to represent characters. God had done that thousands of years ago. Pharaoh had a dream in which seven fat, sleek cows came up from the river and were grazing there in the marsh grass. And then seven ugly and scrawny cows came up from the waterway and ate the seven fat cows. But even after eating them, the second seven cows were still scrawny and ugly. The first seven cows represented seven years of plentiful crops. The second seven cows represented seven years of drought and famine. These pictorial figures are they're really very easy to understand. That's now, an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. In, in the eighth chapter of Daniel... Daniel had a vision in which a goat trampled a ram. We read in that chapter that the goat represented the empire of Greece and a ram represented the empire of Medo-Persia. We are also told that the goat had a large single horn, which was broken off and four other horns came up to replace it. And that uh, is widely and well understood to represent the death of Alexander the Great and the division of the Grecian Empire into four parts after his death. Now, we understand these animals representing things. In Revelation 13, we have scenes similar to those in Genesis and Daniel. Animals, wild beasts, are used to represent other things. The dragon, who's representing Satan and all his messengers, stands on the shore of the Sea of Humanity and caused a wild beast to come up out of the waters. There's many parallels here to Daniel 7. These waters are described in the book of Revelation as peoples and throngs and nations and languages. It's, it's obviously many people being represented here. Right. And there are seven heads on the beast, which are said to be seven kings and ten horns, which are also ten kings or, or kingdoms that will arise later. So we have a, a beast made up of humanity with seven heads and ten horns, but it's really kind of a conglomeration or a confederation of different kingdoms. Now, clearly, the beast of the out of the sea represents these kingdoms, and they are the ones that will persecute the saints. Then there's a second beast that comes up out of the land. 
that beast becomes known as the false prophet. That beast has two horns. So evidently there's a duality in its leadership. And it's interesting that we have a duality in its script, its description. It's said that it controls false worship and commerce on a global scale. That's true. Okay. Now, the problem we have with chapter 13 comes from commentators who lose sight of the beast as an animal. And there are different things said about some of the heads and horns and so forth. But what they do is they identify one of its heads as the Antichrist. And from that point on, they make the beast a superhuman individual. They lose sight of the global scale of the vision as John sees it and transform the beasts into individuals. E.W. Bullinger, A.E. Nock, J.A. Seiss, and, and many other scholars, scholars all do the same thing. They're so caught up in their effort to identify one head or one horn of a beast that they forget it is a beast, or, or seem to anyway. Right. Then, when the beasts are thrown into the lake <laughs> of fire, they have to make them superhuman individuals so they can have literal fire and literal death to fit their theology. Now, you know, it's interesting you say that, Phil, because how often do we look at that and see, like, for instance, the Antichrist is this individual who's literally being burned before there's technically ever been a resurrection? Yeah, yeah there there's a lot of problems with this, but, and if I would name another fault for this, the, the great, um, the, the fame of the great late planet earth and, and writings such as these have already given people presuppositions about what they're going to find when they come to the book of revelation, instead of letting the book explain itself. Right. And, and that gets us in trouble. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. You it know, does. Bill, what we should be seeing is the description that come to us in chapter 16 that precedes the battle where these animals are actually defeated. There's the dragon representing Satan and his angels. There's a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And the false prophet beast that has horns like a lamb. And all three of these are seen in chapter 16 with demons like frogs coming out of their mouths. And then these demons gather global armies to fight against the great rider on the white horse, whose name is the word of God. The two beasts are cast into a lake of fire and the dragon is locked in the abyss, or as the King James says, in the, in the bottomless pit. Now, at this time, John does not see any humans cast into the lake of fire. Just two dreadful animals. That's what he sees in the vision. Right. And when Daniel saw a goat trample a ram and break its horns, it represented the Grecian Empire conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. There was no goat or ram. There were two empires conducting military and political campaigns. When John saw the two beasts cast into the lake of fire and writhing in pain there, it did not represent anyone or anything 
actually being tormented in literal fire. It represented the nations of the political organizations represented by the beast being chastised. This is the very same thing spoken of in Matthew 25, where it speaks of sheep and goat nations. In Matthew 25, that judgment is called Eonian fire, which is Eonian chastisement. Those nations will pay tribute and be under conscripted labor to rebuild Israel. We could we can show many verses in the Old Testament prophets that describe this. It will be a sentence of hardship and slavery. Those nations go into the Eonian chastisement prepared for the devil and his angels. And after the thousand years in the abyss, the lake of fire is where the devil and his angels are cast. Once we understand that the thing, what the things John saw mean, it becomes clear that the individuals judged at the great white throne are cast in, into the lake of fire. It is a simple way of saying they are sentenced to hardship and labor also. They are given a sentence which will actually be their means of paying their debt and rehabilitating their heart and mind. So just to conclude this, we've had a lot of thoughts here, but John actually saw two animals, two wild beasts, cast into a lake of fire where they were tormented. And later he saw a dragon cast into the lake of fire where the two animals still were. This is an awe-inspiring picture of judgment. It's also important that we keep the biblical example of Daniel's visions in mind if we would hope to understand John's visions. You know, Phil, I find it very interesting that you use the word rehabilitation. Um, to me, this all just makes a lot of sense to see these animals of the visions in a lake of fire uh, being rehabilitated and representing something else. But it is still such a really horrifying vision. Is there a reason that such a gruesome figure should be employed to describe the judgment of a God who is good and scripture tells us is love? Well, that's a, that's a good question, Bill. And I think the answer is yes, there, there is a good reason for this. The kingdom of God is coming, but humanity is so easily swayed and distracted from what is coming and what is acceptable to God. We need strong language and vivid pictures to make us stop and think. The Bible says that those Jews who missed the kingdom will wail and grind their teeth in anguish because they knew the kingdom was coming, but they missed participating in the greatest days for the human race because they were too self-centered to be obedient to God. If I give another illustration here from the gospel accounts, the Lord Jesus said, it's better if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better to be uh, to enter into the kingdom having only one eye than to not enter the kingdom, but to be actually would be punished with with a death sentence and cast into Gehenna. Right. Uh, and people, you know, read those verses and they they want to take them so literally. But I'd like to ask the question: 
and and he also said, you know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, or if it causes you to offend. Well, does your eye cause you to offend, or yes. is is it your heart and mind which uses the eyes to make you cause an offense? And does your right hand steal something, or does your heart and mind tell your right hand to take that thing that doesn't belong to you? He was that was exaggeration, but it was exaggeration for the purpose of getting the point across that this was very important. Right. Right. You know, would this fall in line with what's what's told us of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt? Were they're said to be in a in a iron furnace or an iron crucible? Yes, I, I think that's a very good uh comparison bill um the lake of fire if we there's actually three times the bible calls israel slavery in egypt an iron furnace or or crucible and once it's called a furnace of affliction right but there was no furnace it was really the slavery in the brickyards of egypt the furnace was the sun drying and baking the bricks so if Iron furnace is deemed a good description of Israel's slavery in Egypt. Is lake of fire such a terrible term to describe the judgment on the nations of the world that have fought against God? I, I think not. I think it's very balanced. I think so, too. Well, since we are seeing that these beasts and figures are representing different realities, what do you think is represented when John said that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire? That's a very thoughtful question, Bill. Um, you know, it deserves careful consideration. Among the echelons of the gods of ancient religions, there were gods credited with controlling the realm of the dead. It is a possibility that John saw figures representing some of these gods cast into the fire. But the problem with that idea is that it would separate the spiritual realities they represent from being part of the dragon and be, being, uh, you know, in the bottomless pit when he was there. But death and Hades are human conditions. They're not really spiritual beings. It seems much more likely that we should go back and look at the characters of John's visions. In the sixth chapter of Revelation, with the opening of the seals, John saw a rider on a greenish horse, and that rider was named Death. And following behind him was Hades. Hades was not given a description there. Perhaps Hades was a second rider on a greenish horse, or perhaps Hades was a character who followed behind collecting the dead in a big sack or something there's descriptions of hades in the bible figurative descriptions that would make that uh, seem like a possible thing that john, that john may have seen but what we should expect is that john saw the characters mentioned in chapter six a rider on a greenish horse and another character he saw these thrown into a literal lake of fire then we need to consider what this meant in literal terms. First, 
let's note that there is mention of a second death, but there is no mention of a second Hades. It appears that Hades is vanquished, never to be heard or seen again. This goes along with 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks of the abolition of the condition of being dead. This requires that mortality never comes to completion in death after this great white throne and this judgment here. The second death can only be a mortal condition that will not end in death, but will ultimately be replaced with immortality after the sentence of judgment is served. And Bill, one more point I'd, I'd like to throw in here. It was of interest to me in trying to study these things. John never even mentions Gehenna. Christ mentioned it many times in the Gospels. And many people have the opinion that the lake of fire is the same thing as Gehenna. But there is nothing in John's writings to confirm that. Gehenna was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where bodies of executed criminals were cremated and, and a lot of trash was thrown. So <laughs> That's true. And that's fascinating. You know, I never, I never stopped to think about that point. Um, I think in some ways we're conditioned to believe a certain way and we just take it for granted and don't stop to think about it. We just read it into the passage. Yeah. Um, I am talking with Bible scholar and author Phil Scranton about his book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. Phil, since we brought this up and we've touched around it, I have to ask, what is the Great White Throne? Uh, well, the Great White Throne, Bill, is, I think, the symbol for the great and final judgment of humanity. This throne will continue on the new earth to carry out justice and rule on the new earth till judgment is completed. You know, many people think that as soon as we have the new heaven and the new earth, everything is, is peaches and cream from there on out, but we still find these judgments on the unbelieving being mentioned, and there's still rule to be conducted on at that time. In the Old Testament, I'd like to give an example here. We, we read about Solomon, and it says that he built a great ivory throne. And of course, we know ivory is white. So we have, in a, in a sense, we have a great white throne in the Old Testament. Right. And this throne was one the likes of which were never seen in any kingdom, it says. And then right at about that time, we have a story of Solomon making a judgment. And I'd like to give that story just briefly. Uh, real quickly, we have a story of one of these judgments, and there were two prostitutes who lived together and who both gave birth to sons within three days of each other. Evidently, one mother rolled over on her son in the night, smothering it. Something happened, and one of them died. But she rose and switched her dead son with the living son of the other woman. The two women came before Solomon in judgment both claiming the living child was their own. Solomon called for a sword and instructed one of the guardians to divide the living child in half and give each woman half. <laughs> Boy, what a... <laughs> what a picture, huh? <laughs> yeah, what a picture. Well, immediately, the true mother 
pleaded for the child's life saying, give it to the other woman. Don't give me half. But the woman who was not the true mother said to divide it. Solomon stopped the guard before the child was injured and he gave it to the true mother. The point of this story was that Israel saw that God's wisdom was upon Solomon and the people feared and revered him. When we apply this as a type to the great white throne in Revelation, it shows us that Christ, who passes the true judgment on the works of each individual's life, possesses a depth of insight and perception that cannot be deceived. There will be no inaccurate judgments made at this throne. No kingdom has ever existed where the throne or rule could compare with the throne of the kingdom of God. And, and Christ will just be a tremendous, tremendous judge. And whatever he, whatever sentence he declares will be what's right and what's needed to make things right. Wow, that'll be quite a day, won't it? <clears throat> Certainly will. You know, I can't help but think, you know, of the great white throne judgment. I, I keep coming back into my mind that there could be a textual issue with the decree coming from the great white throne. What would that textual uh, issue be in your mind? Yeah, that's that's a very important issue, Bill, because I think it really changes our whole perspective of the great white throne. Um, when, when we look there in Revelation chapter 21 at the first three verses, what we find is that a copyist for the received text Instead of writing the good phrase out of the throne when he's speaking about hearing a voice, he looked back a line to a line in the second verse and wrote, out of the heaven. Now, obviously, the first three words are the same and could cause a mistake. And, and if, you, if you've ever tried to copy someone's letter or something out of a book, when you have a similar phrase on two lines close together, it's very easy to lose your place. I do that even with my own writing. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Yeah. But, um, Uber, and then it, it's not only the first three words out of the are exactly the same, the very same letters and everything, but the words, uh, the last words of the phrases have similarities too. Uranos is heaven and Thronos is throne. And the TH of Thronos is a theta, which is a rounded letter. And depending on, you know, how a copyist makes the letters, it could look quite similar to the Omicron or O, which is the first letter for heaven. Now, for the last, say, 150 years, probably the King James Version and the New King James Version are about the only ones that continue having the phrase out of heaven twice. Uh, the textual evidence is, is strong. And I don't think there's any real dispute that this word comes out of the throne. And the, I said, mentioned the New King James, but it was also made with the requirement of following the King James Version and not changing anything that might be doctrinal. So realizing that the decree which 
follows issues from the great white throne, it changes our whole outlook on the judgment pronounced there. What is the covenantal aspect of the great white throne? Well, that's a very, another very interesting uh, point, Bill. And it's real, it's very easily overlooked. It's very easy to miss this. If we went back to the first chapter of Genesis, we'll find the words, and God said 10 times. And God said, let there be light, etc., etc., etc. There are 10 divine theats or commands of creation. When God created the family of Israel into his nation, he made a covenant with them, and he gave them the 10 words or 10 commandments on stone tablets. Israel was also given many other laws, but we know that the Ten Commandments are really a good summary of God's law. They deal with one's relationship to God, actually our, our relationship to ourselves and to our, our family and our neighbors. So it's a very good summary. So this number 10 we see, especially when it's connected to God's word, we see it insinuating a special relationship to him. In, in Revelation 21, 3 through 5, we have a divine statement from the great white throne stating God's relationship to the new creation. Now, the great white throne is actually the seat of authority from which the new creation originates. The great white throne is the throne of the context. It was named just a few verses before. And the use of the definite article in, in each successive mention of the throne causes us to know that it's the great white throne that's being referred to. It calls us back to that. Right. So I'd like to just listen to the hope and the joy that flow from this. This is a tenfold commandment which comes from the great white throne. I'm going to read it here. And I hear a voice out of the throne saying, Lo, the tabernacle of God is with mankind, and he will be tabernacling with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be brushing away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more nor mourning, nor clamor, nor misery. They will be no more, for the former things passed away. And he who was sitting on the throne said, Lo, new am I making all. Now, in our book, Bill, this multiple divine fiat is given in the form of a, a chiastic or inversion outline. And I'd like to notice the characteristics of this outline. This is the first recorded decree from the great white throne. It appears to take place after the coming of the new heaven and new earth, though we don't, we're not guaranteed that's the exact order of events, but John records it with the coming of the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem. These divine commandments of the new creation begin and end with a reference to the throne, investing the entire decree with royal divine authority. 
the decree begins and ends with the commandment to look or behold or attention when it uses that word low something tremendous is about to be spoken and then next we find the greek conjunction chi which is our english word and repeated five times and then we have the greek negative ou or which which we often have as no or nor or not it's repeated five times and it's uh, twice as no and and three times as nor these words are connectors that tie the entire decree into one glorious whole the balance of positive and negative statements makes the decree all the more emphatic and it gives the decree a semblance to old testament covenants and treaties which contain both blessings for keeping the covenant and curses if the covenants were not kept uh, one example of that bill if people think about the book of deuteronomy and where moses is really placing the covenant before israel and there were the blessings and the cursings right and uh, so there's a lot of uh, symbolism in the way that this these commands are set before us let me give you the first five the number one the tabernacle of god is with mankind that's the first statement and and let me <laughs> allow me to pause the tabernacle of god is with mankind it doesn't say the tabernacle of god is with israel right. it doesn't say the tabernacle of god is with the church it doesn't say the tabernacle of god is with believers or the elect or the chosen or the sheep nation or the overcomers even the tabernacle of god is with humanity with mankind number two he will be tabernacling with them they will be his peoples god himself will be with them he will be brushing away every tear from their eyes there's five positive statements right number six, number six death will be no more nor mourning nor clamor nor misery that's number nine number ten they will be no more for the former things passed away so as we we look at this declaration from the great white throne statements one through five are all positive statements six through ten are all negative and really doubly locking in the security of the new creation also, the preposition with meta is repeated three times as and that's often a way of giving emphasis and the 10 statements together leave no doubt as to the glorious condition when God is with us. This is God's covenant with creation when he creates all anew. Why do the last two chapters of Revelation have such a different perspective? I think there are at least a couple of reasons for the last two chapters, uh, why the last two chapters are so different from the earlier chapters of the book. Early on, we see the struggles of the overcomers under the persecution of Satan. We see a global sized organization against them. Their plight seems hopeless. <clears throat> While this condition covers most of the chapters in the book, it covers a much shorter period of time than the last three chapters. 
but at last Christ comes on the scene at the critical moment when, you know, while we're sitting there on the edges of our seats and we're, <laughs> as we follow the visions through and things are so terrible, we're hearing the worst and Christ comes and he saves the day. The Lord Jesus is such a tremendous hero. Suddenly, at the critical moment, he is there. The good things, both of the millennial age and the final age on the new heaven and earth are condensed into the last three chapters. So that's the, the time they cover is actually one of the big reasons why they're so different. And secondly, the copyist error early in chapter 21 separated the glorious decree from the great white throne, making it an unexpected voice from heaven. That allowed the idea that the great white throne was a bench of gloom and doom, so to speak, when the scriptures actually connect it with the new creation. And the errant translations of Ion and Ionios had us presupposing a conclusion of misery and torment for the majority of God's creation. Really, we felt doomed before we got to the end of the visions, and then we limited the blessings to only those who overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Adam brought death to the whole race, and we used to believe that only those who persevered in faith escaped endless torment. We used to believe the last two chapters were only for a few, but I've come to see that that's definitely not the case, Bill. Is is that how you would understand a passage like First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, where it references uh, for an Adam all die and Christ even so and Christ all are made alive? Yes, it's very much related here, um, and it, as I said, it's this false impression of the great white throne and and what takes place there that uh, supports what's considered to be an orthodox view, but it's just a, a popular traditional view, which is really more Platonic philosophy than it is anything else. Okay. So what is your response then to the linguists who would argue that these two chapters are really just nothing more than unrelated scraps of visions? Now, this is a question, almost an issue that really kind of surprised me when I first met up with it and to see uh, people like R.H. Charles even in the uh, International Critical Commentary on the New Testament say that it was pretty much generally agreed that these were just scraps of different visions stacked together. And it's really the reason they give, it just seems like they don't see the chronology that's involved there. And with the mistranslation of Ionios, they don't have any conception of a, a progressive chronology there either. And they don't didn't realize what the great white throne was for. So the linguists struggled with these statements. They couldn't, they seemed to have gaps. They seemed to be disjointed from the previous chapters. That's, that's one issue. But secondly, I, I think this is very key also. In reading the final chapters, there are places where it may seem that those who are cast into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment are just outside the new Jerusalem, still committing the same sins of their previous life. Some would even make the new Jerusalem like a lone oasis uh, of righteousness in a world of sin. 
This is a result of failing to see time shifts in the context. In the last two chapters, there are shifts from the times of the vision back to the days in which John was living. Failing to recognize this leaves the reader confused. And also John speaks of both of the final eons in these last two chapters, even after the great white throne has already been seen and the millennial age has ended. This too leaves the unsuspecting reader in confusion. We we try very hard and I think very helpful the uh, clear up and unravel these problems in our book. I am talking with uh, Phil Scranton about his book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. You know, Phil, we've hit around the edges of it and we haven't really addressed it yet. So I think I would be remiss if I did not ask you point blank. What is the second death then? That's really the big question, isn't it, Bill? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. There are a number of issues that go into our conclusion, and I want to be clear and brief, but let me first read a verse from John's account of the life of Christ. Uh, this is going to be from John chapter 5, verse 24. It says, Verily, verily, and this would be Christ speaking, Verily, verily, I am saying to you that he who is hearing my word and believing him who sends me has life eonian, and is not coming into judging, but has proceeded out of death into life. In the next verse, Christ refers to the coming resurrection. Those today and in John's day who believed in Christ were not experiencing Eonian life at that time, other than having the first fruit of God's spirit in their life. Eonian life, or as many will call it eternal life, is not a full literal condition until those kingdom eons arrive. Eonian life is the life of the kingdom ages yet to come. Also, those whom Christ said have Eonian life have not yet passed out of death literally, but they have passed the time after which it's sure that they will receive it. They assuredly will be made immortal in the future and enjoy the life of the kingdom ages. Now, secondly, when we come to these final pages of the Bible, there are a lot of seconds that figure into our thoughts. Adam, as you mentioned, Bill, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Adam was the first head of humanity, and Christ is even now becoming the second head of humanity. So think about this word second as I go through some thoughts here and uh, with the idea of the second death in the back of our mind. The first man was out of the earth soilish. The second man is the Lord out of heaven. The judgment at the great white throne will complete a second judgment on all humanity. The first judgment of death came upon all humanity in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and it was passed on to all humanity. Believers in Christ will also have the works of their life judged at the dais or judgment seat of Christ. And all of humanity that remains will be judged at the great white throne. For the unfaithful and wicked of those, they will continue living in mortality. And as all of Adam's descendants did. For them, it is a second judgment of death though it will not be allowed to consummate or come to a full 
fruition in the grave. And for the resurrected and vivified ones who are serving Christ, their Eonian life is a second life. Whether they entered it through resurrection or if they were vivified, that is made immortal while living in those last times, it is a second life for them. So these ideas of of second life and second death go together, don't they? They sure do. In the first portion of Journey to and Through the Second Death, we looked at the Bible's teaching on death and found it to be an unconscious condition. The second death will be different in that it never consummate in that unseen or Hadean state. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, death will be abolished. The decree from the great white throne repeats this promise, saying that death will be no more. And since those who are in the lake of fire are conscious and suffer the endurance of a righteous correcting judgment, they are not in what we would call the first death. Now, it's John who makes these repeated contrasts that are powerful by virtue of the dramatic differences between life and death. And it's John who speaks of the second death. And yet our book draws the connecting lines to show that many of the parables of Christ also speak of the second death, though they do not use those terms to describe it. In conclusion, Bill, the second death is a second mortality experienced by those not judged favorably at the great white throne. For most of those in the second death, it will be the second time they are existing in a mortal life. But the rule of that final eon will keep them alive until their sentence of judgment is completed, and then they will receive immortality. The second head of humanity will not allow anyone to be lost. The second death is a good term to use for this because the life it stands in contrast with is the Eonian life, that immortal life, which is the second life to those experiencing it, the life of those kingdom ages. So if I hope that's clear, but that's that's my understanding and reasons for what exactly the second death is and why that term is used. That's fascinating. And I have to mention that this is really a radical departure from what most of Christendom would teach. And I think it's it's really important for us as we approach scripture to keep an open-minded when we approach any topic. Um, when we close our mind, we oftentimes fail to receive truth that God is trying to give to us uh, just because it's different. That's uh, very true, Bill. You know, I, I, I do want to ask you maybe one last follow-up question, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, could you give us an example of one of the time shifts that you talked about in the last chapters? Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, let's look in Revelation chapter 21, at verse 5, and I'd like to read verses 5 through 8 there. Okay. And I think that uh, this will really bring out um, what we're talking about. And he who is sitting on the throne said, Lo, new am I making all. And he is saying, Right, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, I have become the Alpha and the Omega, 
the origin and the consummation to him who is thirsting, I shall be giving of the spring of the water of life gratuitously or freely. He who is conquering shall be enjoying this allotment, and I shall be a God to him, and he shall be a son to me. Yet the timid and unbelievers and the abominable and murderers and paramours and enchanters and idolaters and all the false, their part is in the lake of fire burning with sulfur, which is the second death. Now, Bill, in verse five, with the words, and he is saying, right, we are taken out of the vision and out of the future. And the one sitting on the throne is talking directly to John, giving John instructions on what he should do. Time reverts to the time in which John was living there on the Isle of Patmos. Notice then that the the description of those who will be blessed. They are thirsting. They are drinking from a spring of the water of life. And they are conquering or overcoming. Those who thirst, thirst in John's day or even today. Those who drink from a little spring drink today, not in the future days of the vision when the water of life is a river coming out from the throne of God. Those who overcome or conquer do so in the days of persecution. In the future days of the vision, those who thirsted and drank from the spring will be satisfied, and those who overcame by the blood of the Lamb are then rulers and the empowered servants of God. We need to realize this change of perspective. Similarly, the timid and unbelievers and the abominable and murderers and so forth will be committing those things in John's day and in the days previous to the great white throne. In the final days of the vision, the nations will be walking according to the light of the new Jerusalem. We read that in these last chapters. The sinners will have been resurrected. They will know that they died. They will know that they stood in dread before God. Those, those are traumatic experiences, Bill. And they will know that they are serving a just sentence of judgment. And, and I believe they're really going to be looking forward to completing that sentence so they can be at full peace with God and have immortality. The sins mentioned here in Re- and also in Revelation 22:15 are not still being committed after the great white throne judgment. The the fear of God and the rule of the new Jerusalem will see to that. This book sounds so fascinating. Um, how, How can I purchase the book Journey to and Through the Second Death? The book is still at the present time uh, going through the editing and and setting up processes, Bill. it will be available in paperback uh, and also as an ebook from Amazon. And uh, I'm expecting by the end of April that it should be on the market. That sounds awesome. And do you have any closing comments for our listeners? 
Yeah, if I may, I, I would just like to say that for me, for me personally, it was a very difficult to divorce myself from all my preconceived notions and actually study John's revelations without any bias. Even, even when I thought my mind was open, I found many times that the things I had been taught or heard or read, you know, quickly came in suggesting solutions to questions and they did not originate in the Bible. I'm happy to finally have overcome them and seen these visions in a new light, which I believe is much more biblical. Now I can actually even, and this will sound strange, but I can glory in the great white throne judgment and the second death because I understand it as God's process for bringing about a wonderful and glorious end that includes everyone. And to me, that's just a wonderful feeling. It is. And do you have any other, any other books or things, uh, you know, writings or things like that, that maybe our listeners would have an interest in? Uh, I do have another book that's available online. It's uh, titled Samson is Christ, the Marvelous Opener of the Gates. And this book shows how many of the events in the life of Samson actually represented Christ. That sounds like a fascinating read as well. Is it also available on Amazon? Um, I'm not sure if that one is Amazon or somewhere else right now. I haven't actually looked myself in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, if they would put in uh, Samson or J. Philip Scranton as author and uh, Samson as Christ, that it should come up. Okay, that sounds good. I do want to thank uh, thank you, Phil, for coming on the show today. Um, My pleasure, Bill. You know, Phil Scranton is a dear friend, like I said. He's a Bible scholar and an author of the upcoming book, Journey to and Through the Second Death. And if you have enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our website at www.beacon-ministries.org. And if you'd like more information on this title, I actually did have uh, my dear friend and brother, Phil Scranton, teach on our Zoom studies this very topic. And you could actually view it right on the website under the header of uh, Quarantine Archives. So if you did enjoy this podcast, please check us out, www.beacon-ministries.org. Better yet, why not join us for our weekly Bible Zoom study meetings? Uh, and again, you can find details for that at that www.beacon-ministries.org address. Till next week, God bless and good day. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.